Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 verse 13. On today's podcast, we have Shannon Yakobachi. Shannon is an FASD educator, certified facets facilitator, disability advocate, and a family coach. Shannon is also a foster adoptive parent with four children diagnosed with FASD. She knows firsthand what daily life is like parenting children on the FASD spectrum. She saw trainings from leaders within the FASD community to help her and her family understand their unique needs. After an intensive year-long training, Shannon became a certified facilitator for the FACETS Neurobehavioral Model, and she has trained thousands of caregivers, foster adoptive parents, mental health professionals, students, educators, and organizations on FASD. She is currently advocating and beginning the process of setting up FASD trainings for birth families looking to reunify with their children. She believes the more we empower families with the education and tools they need, the less frustration and anxiety they will need, making family reunification for foster adoptive placements more successful. Shannon continues to advocate for children and teens with disabilities in the educational system, and she is also certified in youth mental health first aid. So welcome to today's episode. I have the pleasure of speaking with Shannon Yakobachi. Shannon, as you heard in our intro, is a facets facilitator a mom, FASD educator, a disability advocate, a family coach, and also a co-star with me on the awesome FASD Awareness 2020 video we did, Red Shoe Rush Remix. Um, That was so much fun. Shannon, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. I am so excited to talk to you. (laughs) Oh, and I'm so excited to talk to you. I know a little bit about your background, but let's share with our audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in the FASD community. Sure. Well, as you already stated, my name is Shannon. I am a mom of six children in a blended family. I do have four children on the FASD spectrum, and all of them are affected differently. When my kids were younger, my older kids were younger, I was very focused on their physical health, but I did not see the signs of FASD. And honestly, it was not on my radar. FASD wasn't really talked about much at all as a possibility uh, for them. It wasn't until they hit middle school and when one of my other children was creating a little bit of divide in our family with her behaviors that I started putting some pieces together. So this made me search for some answers. My search led me to an FASD specialist that confirmed FASD for my two youngest. Uh, Still needing more though, you know, okay, now that I had this diagnosis, what does that mean? So when I searched out and found FACET, and that organization, it it was life-changing for us. 
and I received their training. And I took a training that um, was a three-day training for us. And in this training is when I recognized that not only my two youngest had FASD, but potentially my two older kids in middle school had the same characteristics. So I left there very much with my eyes wide open and decided to seek a diagnosis or at least an evaluation for my older kids. I poured myself into learning as much as I could through training and joining nonprofit organizations and received a diagnosis for my older kids. And I realized there was really, when I was on the search for information, I realized there really wasn't anything out there. There was not much. And I decided that I really wanted to become a certified facilitator of the of the facets neural behavioral model because when I went home from that training, I found that it worked incredibly well with my kids. So because of all of that, I now educate, train, and advocate and mentor caregivers, foster and adoptive parents, organizations, educational systems, and professionals. And I'm currently working on creating a program for birth families that are looking to reunify with their children. It's kind of about what I do. <laughs> that is terrific. Oh my goodness. You wear so many hats and that's awesome. <laughs> So today we are talking about a topic that some people scream and run away from others, you know, they they, (laughs) they put on their, they put on their um, combat boots and and jump right in. Today we're talking about FASD in teens, um, which you and I both know personally much about this topic from lived experience. Yes, we do. (laughs) Um, Definitely from lived experience. This is a really important topic because I think people in the FASD community, maybe they don't realize that so many of the behavior symptoms of what we're seeing are rooted in that FASD brain-based diagnosis. So let's talk about why, why do you think this is an important topic for us to cover today? Well, I am excited to talk today about the teens because like you said, people tend to shy away from it or there, it can be met with so much resistance. I think that teens in general have a bad rap in life. And then when you add FASD on top of that, it can be met with a bunch of resistance or, or a lack of hope. But I'm excited to talk today because sometimes I feel like there's an underlying misconception in the general public and in our educational and societal system that kids that are diagnosed with FASD will suddenly and miraculously grow out of it. And that by the time they reach middle school or high school, that they no longer have it. When the reality is, it is a lifelong disability with no cure. And what we find is a lot of times, there might not be a recognition that there's an FASD spectrum until the child starts reaching middle school. It's right at the time when transitioning to middle school and the expectations increase, and we start to see a disconnect with these kids. So parents and teachers and the educational system start to try to reduce services and support to increase the independence of the person. That's a normal part of growing up for most kids. However, this is contrary to maybe what these kids with FASD may need because now the demands are higher and they may lack those executive functioning skills necessary to keep up with those demands. So with the idea to create them to be more independent, these teens may actually need more support than an elementary school. And we would need to push 
in instead of pull back. So recognizing that even in my own experience, when I started to support my children more, once I because honestly, like I had said earlier, I didn't discover that my older kids had a, had FASD until we hit middle school. And the emotional um, struggles that they went through and all of the things that were happening with them had really opened my eyes to the types of support that they needed. And I did start to see behavioral symptoms because the supports were not in place. The thought is, well, you're 14, you're 15, you should be able to do this. And that's the normal thought process. You know, it's just something that we do as parents even. Well, you're 14, you should be able to, you know, do a piece of homework. You should be able to write down in your agenda what is expected of you that day. And I feel like these kids, when they don't have these supports, when they start to not meet those expectations that we put on them, that's when some of the anxieties and the, the behavioral symptoms come into play. And what we can see is I wanted to kind of give you some of the, the facts and some of the statistics. And these are not to overwhelm or to frighten anyone. It's just general statistics based on lack of support. And that would be when there's not appropriate supports in place, 94% of those with FASD will end up with a mental health condition. But FASD is not a mental health condition. 50% of those with FASD will end up with interaction within the justice system. The average age, right in middle school, 12 years, eight months, 12 years old, they might have their first interaction with law enforcement. If any of them are incarcerated, 60% of people incarcerated have FASD. However, if we put appropriate supports in place for these children, those statistics will significantly decrease. And I wanna make sure to share that because we can hear those numbers and think, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, if this, is, this is the life, this is the expectancy for my child when they hit teenage years. Not necessarily. I was able to intervene and help one of my children who was going down that path because there was a lot of resistance and behavioral symptoms taking place in the school environment because of the lack of support. And once I recognized that it was FASD related and they were behavioral symptoms, everything was able to change. I was able to get appropriate support. I was able to see the things that I needed to do as a parent for my child. And some of the reasons why these, these happen, some of the issues surrounding, I would say, teens with FASD that can be seen like as bad behaviors or needing the justice system or not doing well with their schooling um, can be confabulation because they need to fill in the blanks to make sense due to poor memory. They may be easily manipulated by others and not understanding what they're actually doing. So for example, a friend can say, hey, can you meet me out back at midnight and help me load a truck? Well, sure, right? That sounds like fun. I'd love to hang out with you. But the person with FASD may not realize that they're being asked to actually rob a location behind a store. Their impulsivity and lack of understanding of ownership could get them in trouble with stealing. And their explosive behaviors due to being misunderstood or a misinterpret uh, misinterpretation of social cues can actually happen. But when we put the right supports, when we accommodate these kids and, and meet them where they're at, those statistics can go down. And there's a lot 
of successful, I don't want to say the word successful, positive outcomes that can take place when we help these kids. Hope in accommodations, I think sounds like a big takeaway from that answer. There are, and Absolutely. I've, I've noticed, I've definitely, we've experienced, you know, there's such a bigger gap as the child with FASD becomes a teen because like you said, there's more demands of executive functioning. There's more demands of, you know, meeting certain requirements that developmentally they're not ready to do. So making sure that you actually implement more accommodations and more support during the teen years, that sounds like that's going to be the, the game changer. So Absolutely. that is, that is, wow. So that's a great way to sum up things. What are some other challenges that parents and caregivers may experience when they are parenting or caring for a teen with an FASD? Well, I know we don't have hours to talk, but <laughs> um, some of the challenges that I personally have experienced, as well as you know what others may experience, uh, would be, like we've said before, escalated behavioral symptoms due to not being able to meet those expectations. Require things, school require things, our their peers, keeping up with their peers alone. Imagining if we don't have that executive functioning skill, or we don't understand social cues. Imagine how difficult that could be with your peers. And that's a challenge that, you know, and, and for us parents to navigate that for our kids. What I also see is the concern of independence. As the child matures from a teen to young adult, some of those examples could be a driver's license. Is my child able to get a driver's license? Can my child actually anticipate what's going to happen. I'm in a left turn lane and I should have turned right. That child capable of staying where they are and figuring out to go a different direction or are they going to impulsively just turn right from left hand lane? I mean, these are simple things that we, we might take for granted. Like, can, can my child do that? Can my child anticipate if someone's stopping ahead that they need slam on their brakes? Uh, what about an interview? They're reaching the age to potentially get a job. Can they do the interview experience? What it, okay, say they get the job, okay? What about the social interaction? What about the problem solving? What happens when they become triggered on the job and they can't anticipate what to do? Parents think of money management and independent living for a promotion. Our team could be doing a great job. Say they work, they got a job at, at a local fast food restaurant and their job is to keep the dining room clean. Okay, and they keep things clean within the kitchen and they're doing an amazing job. Well, corporate America, what we like to do is we like to promote, right? We like to reward that they're doing such a great job. So we put them at the cash register and now we're interacting with people and we're managing money and we're taking orders and it's a fast paced environment. Is our team able to keep up with those demands? If they have poor memory, what if they have a slow processing uh, in hearing what somebody is saying, okay? What, we promote and then all of a sudden, the teen or person, individual, is now struggling with this new promotion. And instead of recognizing that they were fantastic cleaning and they were perfectly content in cleaning, we've promoted them and now they can't do the job. So what happens? They may lose the job, okay? Which is not their fault. It's our, our ability to recognize that strength that they should have just stayed where they were. They were perfectly happy. 
Um, so that's one thing is the job, the job uh, process that us caregivers worry about or get concerned about. Um, IEP help is another in the educational system and behavior intervention plans. I always like to think, uh, what is the purpose of a behavior in, um, intervention plan? Usually it's to change the behavior, right? But it, maybe it's not the behavior that needs to be changed, but the environment in which that teen is in. Needing them to be met where they're at and providing those right support. Um, a lot, I know that a lot of parents, including myself, had struggled with that IEP process. And, and that's, that's some of that experience that we need, we need to work as a team with our educational system in making those changes. Um, and honestly, from personal experience, I believe it's important that these teams know that they have FASD. Imagine going through life thinking, there's something wrong with my brain. There's something wrong with me. That can make it doubly hard on them because they're gonna personalize it. And they already innately know something's different about them. And I feel that we need to name it and normalize it for them so they can claim that's a part of who they are, but it's not who they are and they can learn to work within those parameters of their strengths. Anxiety, depression, those things that can set in because of lack of support, uh, which creates that mental health condition. We worry about those justice system involvements. We do because of those behavioral escalations. And we also get concerned about them being labeled as the bad kid or that kid with those behaviors. Or honestly, in the school system, that quote, non-preferred task, um, and I'll get to that in, later in our podcast, is that non-preferred task that's um, stated in the educational system. So those are some of the things that we can experience. But again, when we get those supports in place and we accommodate the individuals, again, like I said earlier, meeting them where they're at, giving them the tools for those money management, giving them the tools to help solve problems, giving them tools to, on the job to advocate for themselves, to say, you know what, Mr. Manager, I'm really happy cleaning still. Can I go back to cleaning instead of them losing the job because they couldn't keep up with money management and, and the system? Giving them tools at school to say, to advocate for themselves. Teacher, I can't, can you break this down for me? I don't understand. Can you give me one task at a time? Giving them tools to help themselves as they grow will help them have better outcomes. So again, more support, more accommodations, and something that came up in a previous episode, not only focusing on their strengths, but nurturing those strengths. And nurturing yeah. strengths can mean, like you said, if somebody's really good at a certain job and the business wants to promote them, let them stay where they're at because they're doing so well in it. And that's nurturing a strength. That's not only nurturing, you know, whatever skill that is, but that's also building self-esteem, which we know is, is so, so critically low in this period because of what you're, you're talking about. And I'm just nodding my head as you're answering this, because I, as a, as a mama, I, I hear every, every answer you're, you're telling me, I'm just, I'm nodding. So let's talk about the NB, the neurobehavioral approach to parenting and caregiving and teaching and how it can be so helpful for children, but for especially this topic, teens with an FASD. 
I love talking about the neurobehavioral brain-based approach. It is a game changer, I can tell you. Um, it takes, the, the nuggets from it is that it does take into account the individual person's strengths and abilities and their interests. And it takes in how to accommodate for their personal needs for, say, a given task. And I think what's so important about it is it can be broken down so simplistically for me, task-oriented or strengths and abilities and interests. I have a child that whose ultimate goal in life is to be a dog groomer. How incredibly amazing is that, right? Society may think, really, that's all? But honestly, that child is affectionate with animals, tender and loving, and gentle and would be probably the best dog groomer that everyone would bring their dogs to. And so why not encourage that strength? Why not say, go for it. Be the best dog groomer you can possibly be, right? And the neurobehavioral approach takes that into consideration. The neurobehavioral approach gives some starter strategies for helping with those daily tasks. And those starter trap strategies that were given helped us catapult us to advocating for our children, both in the school system, with their peers, um, with the job system, and, and in the medical community as well. It's important that the medical community understands what our kids and teens and adults have so that they can get those supports too. So the neurobehavioral approach to parenting really does take into consideration the individual, their strengths, their interests, and their needs to accommodate. And when that happens, very positive outcomes take place. There's less frustration for both parent, caregiver, teen, adult, child. There's less frustration on the school system and teachers because they, once they know and they get it, they can see there's less stress and the person can rise to their ultimate potential that, that they can. And again, we may be accommodating as parents and caregivers and not even realizing it because exactly we are aiming to provide a supportive environment for our teens. And again, if, if you think that, you know, going from a child with an FASD to a teen with FASD is going to be easier. No, it's just a shift and it, it really does require more supports because like you said, especially around that middle school age, the demands and the expectations for especially working with tasks or things that require executive functioning skills, that really is kicked in at that middle school age. So talking about the school environment and talking about learning, what kinds of uh, tips and techniques would you recommend for working with families or with schools when we're talking about the topic of FASD and teens? First, I believe that we would need to help not only educate and help families and schools, but I'd like to throw in also mental health professionals and the medical community. And the reason why I, I add that into this question would be if medical personnel were looking for this and identify it, um, they could 
assist in earlier intervention services. Now I understand that sometimes we don't know until the middle school age hits. However, again, if medical personnel um, look for that or ask questions and had some referrals that could also help um, in also within that could that just snowballs the access to education, um, the outcomes of services that these individuals will need um, will be higher than without it. Um, so some of the techniques in working with families and schools, one of the things I like to do is I first also like to know what the strengths are of the individual. Uh, what I find is that even in times of desperation, we can find the good in each person. And it may seem hard to do. I remember being asked in an IEP meeting, so, you know, after we go through all these things, so what are the strengths? Well, you just focus on all these negative things that you want to change about my child. Um, let's focus on the positive first. It can help the family and the school system understand that we're talking about a human being and not just a behavioral symptom. A lot of focus can sometimes be on the symptom. And it's, I think it's important for us to take a step back and look at the person and the individual, not just behavior. I would also like teachers in schools, this is where I said I was going to bring this up again later on in our talk. Here we are. <laughs> um, the, the terminology of a non-preferred task. I, heard, I hear this a lot in helping others in their IEPs and in my own IEP. Um, it is constantly used uh, when evaluating behaviors and intervention plans. If you listen to it, it really is focused on the behavior that we desire the team to do, as opposed to meeting them where they're at. We're trying to change their behavior. But what if the teen cannot do what is being asked of them? What, is their way of what if their way of coping is to sit silently or to talk with their peers? What if their coping skill is, I can't, they're overwhelmed with the task that they've been given and they pull their hoodie up and they put their head on their desk? Okay, I think it's important that we ask the right questions of asking the why behind that behavior. This teen has stormed out of the classroom, right? Of course we don't want those behaviors. It's disruptive, it's disrespectful, right? These are the things that we hear. What led to that behavior? Let's dissect that first before we try to change the behavior because if we can get to the root cause of why that happened, maybe it won't happen and we won't have to quote intervene a behavior adventure plan one of the things i also I, I used to struggle with how to explain performances i guess when they evaluate the performance of the individual right in the school system or even at home and i honestly it was recently that i heard this and even though this has been around for a while it suddenly clicked with me and that was that light bulb example and i'm sure you've heard of it and other people have heard of it. I didn't hear of it. And it was that, well, they could do that task on Monday. Why couldn't they do it on Friday, right? Besides the executive functioning and the memory skills that they needed to remember what we learned on Monday to take that test on Friday, right? But it's kind of like that light bulb. The FASD brain, sometimes that light is on. And the individuals can do tasks with little support. They remember things are going smoothly, all is well in their world, right? It's a beautiful day. Some days, it's like there's a short in that light bulb, okay? Not everything's connecting. They may need more support, right? 
some things that they used to master, they might need a little more assistance with. They can't remember everything, right? But it's not so bad, but it's just like a little flicker in the light, right? And then the FASD brain, some days, it's like it's not turned on at all. No one flipped on the switch. So things that they demonstrated mastery of a couple days prior, they cannot do without support at all. And that's really hard in the school system to identify. It's hard at home. Well, you did, you brought your shoes in and you put them where they belonged yesterday. Why can't you do that today, right? The light, the light bulb is flickering. The light bulb is not on. And it was eye-opening to me to hear that explanation. I used to think of it as a slot machine. You know, you go to a slot machine and you get the reward one day. Well, then you think you're going to get it all the time. You keep putting that money in. You keep pulling and it's not happening. Okay, that's how I used to explain it. And then when I heard this light bulb example, I thought, aha, the light bulb went on, literally, <laughs> for me. And I think that it's important for parents and the educational system and even mental health providers to understand that in working with an individual. Um, we need to understand this concept because we tend to punish the behaviors instead of recognizing that it's a day that simple tasks just need support. And so instead of looking at behaviors, we can again look at that why behind that behavior. What is that, what is our brain, what does that brain need right now? What does that person's brain need in this moment? And I think if we took that takeaway or that step back, we could help them function in a more positive, in a more positive way, I guess is the words I'm looking for. We can have a better positive outcome and less frustration. I think those are the words I'm looking for. Yeah. As a mom who has taken the facets training and, and who has tried to embrace the NB approach, which I, I do love, I have to say that I think that it's a shift from reacting to something to being proactive and planning. Um, and yes. also being a detective. I really feel like a lot of times when something happens and my husband and I, we, you know, we do this together and sometimes he'll, he'll pick up things that I may have missed and vice versa. So, so really being a detective, not only at the home, but in, you know, the work environment, in the school environment, you know, and, and also educating others who work with your team to be a detective to, to say, Hey, yeah. you know what? I think this is going on. And, and I know from, you know, personal lived experience that when you do that, then you can be more, you can plan better and you can, again, just let go of those expectations that, that are demanded of your team. Moving forward, this is just such an awesome conversation and I'm just nodding my head as you're talking just because you know oh. I'm there I'm you know we're living it we we totally get it how can we better support teens with FASD how else can we better support not only teens with FASD but their families as well I would say education is so important the more we know the better we can help right the more we spread the word about this the more awareness that we have the more we um, share our stories with others so they can go, oh, maybe that's something that, you know, I need to look into. I think that we need to help with educating. I think we need to help with erasing the stigma 
there's such a stigma surrounded with FASD because of how it is, um, for lack of a better word, created, how it comes about. And I think that because there's so much stigma around it, we need to help um, erase that, you know, normalize it, that, you know, this is just part of what has taken place. And um, we need to support those individuals and their families. And there's not a stigma around it. Um, I think that we need to have some more supportive services in mental health. Um, IEPs, again, appropriate accommodations, it will be huge for these, for these kids. Uh, otherwise, it can, it can create a traumatic school environment for the child. Imagine the anxiety of going to school every day, you know, and thinking that you can't measure up. And so when we have those IEPs and appropriate accommodations, it's really, it, it, it's a game changer for these kids. I've, I've seen that happen. Um, and helping everyone understand um, that there's no cookie cutter approach to work with these individuals. There's no set parenting style, no set um, educational style, no specific job that um, for these individuals, it's very individualistic and, and that's okay. And so we may have to change our mindset surrounding um, this, this accommodations for these kids and you know some job skill trainings would be helpful um you know such like helping them with applications and helping them with independent living skills and helping with systemic change i know that sounds huge but it can be done it takes a few voices to get the ball rolling and it's already started and i think that's going to be instrumental honestly a way to support these kids are teens and even if they're functioning at a level that's, say, not a teen level, they still have a voice and they know. And we can just ask them, what, does your, what do you need today? What do you need? What does this side of your brain need today? What does this side of your brain need today? You know, because when we ask them, they'll tell us, right? They're going to tell us. And we ourselves need to be open to hearing that. And it may mean I may have to change what I'm doing. I may have to look inside myself and change what I'm doing, how I see it. I may have to evaluate my values and what I was brought up with on what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to handle this, right? And I may have to self-evaluate what triggers me. And that's how we support them. You know, we, we support them by also just like you ha we had mentioned before, changing that mindset encouraging the strengths of these individuals and these families and you know helping helping families understand i that it's okay if our team doesn't necessarily go to college and become this fantastic lawyer like we talked about earlier the best dog groomer you could ever be great are you happy are you functioning with your interests and your abilities and your strengths yes that's a positive outcome and i think that that's okay focusing on those those strengths and interests and abilities will provide those better outcomes for the individual. And helping support these families um, in that is, is key. And walking them through it. And, and, and I really think that we find our tribe, I guess is the word I'm looking for, helping them find their tribe in people that are going through it with them day to day. Because you're not alone. You know, with it being the number one developmental disability in the world, you're not alone. There are people living it day to day with you and we can support them by just even listening.
just I'm, listening. I'm so glad you're saying find your tribe because that's something I've said in previous podcasts. Finding your tribe, not <laughs> only for parents, you know, through support groups, online support groups, you know, pre-COVID in-person support groups, parents right. who get it are, par- are parents who are walking through the same journey with you and they, they understand and they get it. And finding your teen's tribe. I know when mm-hmm. our son, you know, his, his diagnosis came later, but when he met another teen that also had an FASD, it was like this connection he never had before. And it yeah. really made such a difference in his life to see, hey, this kid, you know what? He's, he's going through the same things I'm going through, but he likes the same things I like and he's different and I can do something he can't, but he can do something that I can't and that's okay. And yeah. I know for us, as our son grew older, having that tribe, it doesn't mean having, you know, a hundred however many followers on Instagram, it means having that that handful of teens that he knows has his back. And if he's having a tough day, he knows that those friends, that tribe are okay with it and they're going to support him and say, how can we help? And that makes all the difference. Absolutely. It really does. Absolutely. I have found that that, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that's great because we found the same thing. Yeah. We found the same thing. And when they help each other out, it's so freeing for these kids Yeah, when they have that person that can help them. Yeah, absolutely. This has been such a great conversation with you, Shannon. And I <laughs> invite you to come back again and share more <laughs> of your wisdom in this journey on FASD. Before we share Shannon's information, I'm going to end on this question. I like to end on hope. What takeaways can you give our listeners who are learning from this episode about FASD in teens? And what hope can you plug in there for them who are listening, who are in the trenches just like we are? I love hope. (laughs) I was going to say that um, there is hope, without a doubt. And I was going to say Sometimes when we shift our thinking from that woke to can't can be life-changing. Um, those appropriate accommodations can give better support, positive outcomes. I've seen it happening. I, I, I'm watching it. Again, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I have seen amazing musicians and artists. I have seen amazing lawyers and medical professionals um, rise to their highest potential. And the struggle may be happening right now in your day to day, but it's not the end. And there is, it's a growing process. And when something grows and we nurture those strengths and we nurture, uh, we give the proper food and water, you know, for, for lack of better analogy, it can grow and blossom into something beautiful that people can stop and look at and gaze and appreciate. And I just, I want to leave you with the fact that there is hope and there are functioning adults in this world that are doing just fine living with FASD and have a beautiful life regardless. And that makes my mama heart feel good. It really does. And I hope 
and pray that it makes other parents out there feel good too. Because we know all the statistics and we know all the negative statistics, but if we can share some positive statistics and some positive tools and, and some positive outlooks, that really can bring us through the tough times. So Shannon, thank you so much for being on today's episode. And if you would like to get in touch with her, again, Shannon is not only a certified facets facilitator, she's an FASD educator, a disability advocate, and a family coach, and and just a wonderful resource in the FASD community. So Shannon (laughs) Yakobachi, her website is, I like saying that because my last name is Vecchione, so (laughs) not often do I get to say those beautiful Italian last names. Shannon is on com. Did I say that right? You did. You can also email Shannon at Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, at diversityDesign.com. And her information will be in our program notes on our website, which is FASDHope.com. You can also find Shannon on Instagram and on Facebook. And again, we'll put those handles on our uh, program notes section for you. Thank you so much, Shannon, again, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Remember, there are never too many voices in the FASD community. Advocate, support, accommodate, and nurture those strengths of those individuals that have an FASD. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.